0: We're taking two weeks to study Psalm 1 and 2, which comprise an introduction to the entire book of the Psalms. And our desire in, in teaching these two, two Psalms is to, to really give you the context for understanding the other 148 Psalms. So if you lock in on the categories and the, the basic message of Psalm 1 and 2, a lot of other things in the Psalms will make sense. I don't know if you've ever been reading along in the Psalms and you'll say, why would he say that? About His enemies. I mean, that's brutal. Well, if you understand Psalm 1 and 2 and the categories they're thinking in, uh, that type of thing will make a lot more sense. So last week we saw from Psalm 1 that the person who wants to live a fruitful, stable life needs to be the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night. In other words, this is the person who is teachable before God and is just hungry to learn from God. And Psalm 1-1 makes this pronouncement about that person. That person is blessed. In other words, the favor of God rests upon that person. And that's the first bookend to the introduction to the psalm. If you look at the last verse of Psalm 2, you find the other bookend. And there we find this pronouncement, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it begins and ends in blessing. And so these two bookends are describing the same people. Those who delight in the law of the Lord are also the people that take refuge in him. And so I want us to think today, and so they're really kind of complementary ideas. The first is talking about uh, the the stability and the, the fruitfulness, and the second psalm emphasizes the protection that that person will experience. Before we look at Psalm 2 in, in some detail, I want us to think about the, just the whole concept of taking refuge. Who is it that needs to take refuge or flee to refuge? Well, the person who is in trouble, the person who senses there is some threat to my well-being. And just to let you know where I'm coming from this morning, uh, in terms of the people I talk to week in and week out, and that's many of you. And in terms of the person that I see in the mirror when I look, uh, we all face threats, incredible threats to our well-being. Some are internal, some are external. When it comes to internal threats, uh, it could be anxiety, it could be some sinful habit, it could be an addiction, it could be destructive thoughts. Uh, in, in Genesis four, when God is talking to Cain, He says, "Cain, you need to understand that sin is crouching at the door. Sin is ready to pounce on you, and master you." And so we all face these these internal threats. Other threats are external. Sometimes they're people or circumstances. Sometimes we we legitimately have enemies. There are people who want to see see us fail personally, uh, physically, uh, spiritually, in all sorts of ways. We have an enemy of our souls. We have an invisible enemy of our souls that wants to harass and dominate us and kind of squelch out everything that God is doing in our lives. And of course, we all face the final enemy, death, okay? And so, we all have these, these threats to our well-being. Therefore, it's my assumption today is that we all need to flee for refuge and we're going to flee to the place that we think will give us the most security, the place where we'll be the safest. And so what, what, Psalm, what Psalm 2 encourages us is to understand that the most powerful one to whom you can flee is also the one who is for you and that's Yahweh, that is God himself. And so we're going to look at Psalm 2, and I have to warn you, it's kind of, it's a dense psalm, it's theologically dense, a lot of, a lot of uh, um, concepts, theological and, and biblical concepts there. And so if, you're not, if you don't want to furiously take notes through this whole thing, our manuscript is printed, it's, put, it's posted on the website every Monday, so you can find all the details there if you don't want to take, take notes or you want them later, uh, but uh, kind of strap on your seat belts. this is very, very dense. Uh, Psalm 2 contains four stanzas. Each stanza has three verses. The first stanza says this, is that the nations rebel against the Lord and his anointed. And the the premise here is that since God is the creator of heaven and earth, he's the creator of everyone and everything, therefore, all the nations and their peoples... Are accountable to God. And so the worldview of the Bible is that every human being, no matter what country you're in, no matter what culture you come from, should bow the knee to God himself. And so verse 1 expresses dismay that this is not the case. It says, "'Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing?' And there's all these verbal connections with Psalm 1. The word devising there, uh, the, the ESV says plotting. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 1-2, and it's translated meditate. And so whereas the, the, the righteous meditate day and night on God's word, these rulers and these, these kings, they meditate on how they can throw off God, how they can live independent of, of uh, his oversight, Verse two: The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us tear apart their let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us." And so again, there's this great count, uh, contrast between the righteous in Psalm one and these kings and rulers in Psalm two. Uh, whereas the righteous do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, these kings and these rulers, they embody the counsel of the wicked. Together they meditate against the Lord and his anointed. Think about each of those terms, the Lord. If you ever see in in your English translation, if you see L-O-R-D in all caps, uh, that's a reference to Yahweh, uh, who is the God of the Jews? He's the Creator of heaven and earth. Uh, he is the Lord of hosts. There's the, the Lord of lords. There's all these masters. These other. He is the master. Of these masters. And so that's Yahweh. Uh, His anointed is a reference to the king in Israel. And the king in Israel was called his anointed because the way they designated the next king was they would anoint that person with oil, meaning they would pour oil on that person's head. When Samuel told David, you're the next king, he took oil, probably olive oil, and and poured it over his head, and it ran down. And so that's that's why this king of, of Israel is called the Lord's anointed. And so it's a descendant of David who reigned as the king in Israel. Here in Psalm 2, 3, the kings and rulers, they want to escape his authority and they want to live independent of the Lord and his anointed. They want to break away from any control he might, he might exert through his word, through his actions, through his king. And what was true a thousand years ago is true today. Uh, it is incredibly rare when you find a king or a ruler, a president, a prime minister, somebody in authority who says, no, don't bow down to me. Bow down to Yahweh and his anointed. Most kings, rulers, authorities, they want the, author- they want the accolades. They want people to bow down to them, okay? And so that's what we find true about, about these kings, It was also true in the first century when Christ appeared. And the apostles were so clear on a couple of things. Number one, they were clear about who the anointed was. Uh, It was Jesus Christ. He was was Yahweh's anointed. And so uh, here's here's the three terms. The anointed, the Hebrew word is generally translated Messiah. The Greek word is translated the Christ. And so the Lord's anointed is the Messiah. He is the Christ. They were very clear that that was Jesus. They were equally clear that the Romans and the Jewish authorities, they were the kings and the rulers in their day of Psalm 2. And so in Acts 4, we read this. They, the apostles, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, and they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and then he quotes Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. And then they explain it this way, for truly in this city in Jerusalem they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, you made him Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your person predestined to occur. So do you see what they did? They said, Jesus is your Christ of Psalm 2 and Herod and Pilate and the Jewish authority and the Romans, the they are the kings and the rulers that plotted against him. And so they would say that the ultimate expression of Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, was the crucifixion of Christ. When Yahweh appeared in the flesh and he dwelt among us, what did they cry? Crucify him, crucify him. And so they crucified him on a Roman cross. The nations raged. And the nations still rage today against Yahweh and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, and against everybody who follows Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples, he said, "You need to know that if you if you follow me, it's not going to be a cakewalk. People are going to treat you the same way that they treated me." And so, here in this country, we we've been living in kind of a bubble for a long time. I mean, if you if you speak if you don't speak the name of Christ, nobody's going to give you any flack about being a Christian, okay? But if you speak the name of Christ and you, you share Christ and you, you bear witness for him and you're transparent about your faith, you'll find some people will push back. They might ridicule you. They might exclude you from certain, certain groups and that type of thing. You might experience some, some types of discrimination. But in other parts of the world, I mean, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are arrested and tortured and martyred for their faith, and and there are certainly people of other faiths that are are persecuted. But researchers tell us that Christians are persecuted. Uh, more Christians are persecuted than any other faith, and it and it's it's worst for Christians among governments. Uh, just the last last couple of years, we've seen the Iraqi Christians, right? And we just watch in horror and we sit in silence. But they were basically given two options. You can renounce Jesus Christ or you can be beheaded. And they say, we will not, we will not renounce Jesus Christ. And so the nations rage. They plot, they scheme, they meditate against the Lord and his anointed. What is God's response Look at stanza two, verses four through six. The Lord, first of all, he laughs at them. And second, he enthrones his king. In verse four, you see the initial reaction to the rebellion of the nations. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God is not shaking in his boots. He's not in any way intimidated. He understands that, that they are on a short leash and that they're, they're, uh, one day their rebellion will come to an end. We see that in Psalm 34, among other places. Verse 5, then it will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, so you plot, you rage, but as for me, this is what I do. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And that announcement was terrifying to the nations that rebelled against him. From Zion, he would reign over the entire earth. And you see that throughout the Psalms. The Lord reigns. Let all the world rejoice. The islands, the coastlands, the ends of the earth, let all the earth rejoice because God reigns. He's not a tribal deity. He's not just for one little tribe or clan of people. He is Lord over all the earth. And he says here, as for me, I've installed my king. And the background for God installing a king in Jerusalem is 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've never studied that that chapter, I'd encourage you to take some time. We're going to reference it again in the the next stanza. But there we have this this, uh, account where David, he had built his own palace. He had built his own house. And he says to God, okay, now how about I build you a house How about I build you a temple? And through the prophet uh, Nathan, uh, God said, "No, actually, you're not going to build me a house. Your son Solomon will build me be a house, but I'm actually going to build your house. I'm going to build your dynasty." So we read this in 2 Samuel 7:12, "When your days are complete. and you lie down down with your fathers. In other words, David, after you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. Solomon did that. But more significantly, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this promise that David would always have an heir on the throne is sustained Israel through the darkest of days. When they went off into exile and there was no king on the throne Psalm 2 gave them comfort. It gave them courage that, that God would eventually restore a descendant of David in Jerusalem. Look at verse 6 again. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion was the stronghold, it was a fortress in the, the top of uh, this mountain in Jerusalem. And that's what David cap- captured, and that became the spiritual center of Jerusalem. Uh, That's where the temple was built. Therefore, that's where Yahweh dwelt with his people. So Yahweh dwelt with his king, and Yahweh reigned through his king from Zion. The third stanza continues to explain how Yahweh's king would reign. And so in in beginning in verse 7, the Lord's anointed speaks, and he says, "...the Lord decrees that his anointed, his son, will inherit and rule the nations." Look at verse 7. So again the anointed is is speaking, the king is speaking. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so a couple of things there. He says first of all, you are my son. I will have a father-son relationship with you. Again, that was established that was established in the passage we just read in 2nd Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God said this of the king in, in Jerusalem. He said, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. As God says, I'm going I'm to be like a good father to the king who is enthroned in Jerusalem. The passage goes on to explain that when these kings, when these earthly kings sin, when they committed iniquity, he would discipline them like a good father does his children. And uh, he says, in, in contrast to uh, Saul, who said, after he sinned and rebelled, God said, you will never have a son on the throne. In contrast, God promised he would never remove David's descendants from the throne. And then the second comment, he says, today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And to our modern ears, we think, well, that sounds like someone having a baby this person didn't exist. Now they do exist. I brought a son into the world, and it, it often had that meaning. David begat Isaac. Or I mean, Abraham begat Isaac. Abraham was the father, became the father of Isaac. But here, uh, God isn't saying, "Today I'm bringing you into existence." He's saying, "Today I'm giving you the status of king over Israel. As of today, I am going to rule my people through you." And this discussion about beginning. Uh, beginning his son is relevant for us because several times this verse is quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. For example, in Acts 13, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 2:7 not as a reference to Jesus' birth, but as a reference to his enthronement at God's right hand. So it's very consistent with what we see in Psalm 2. And so in Acts 13, we read this, Paul is speaking, He says, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so when God raised Jesus from the dead, he declared his unique status as the king who would sit on David's throne forever. And that's what the New Testament consistently says. It said Jesus lived a sinless life. He was crucified, buried. He was raised bodily from the dead. And then he was exalted to God's right hand. He was enthroned at God's right hand, the place of authority, the place of power. And so Jesus didn't become God's son at that point. God had already declared at his baptism and at the transfiguration, this is my son. Listen to him. Uh, at his ascension, God enthroned him, uh, enthroned his son as the king. And so we should take great comfort for this. And the, in the, the old covenant, when the people were, were desperate and they wondered, is God going to keep his promises? They looked back to Psalm 3 and said, nope, God promised his, his son would be enthroned in Jerusalem. And in the new covenant, when we wonder, is God going to come through for me? We remember Absolutely. God has enthroned his son, his anointed, our Messiah at his right hand. That's why we can flee to him for mercy. That's why we can come boldly before the throne of grace because God has enthroned his son as our king. He's not only powerful, he is for us and he's been raised up against every spiritual enemy, every authority, every power that we might face. Back in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, we read the rest of of stanza 3. He says, Ask of me, this is God talking to his son, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And so it turns out the nations who are raging against God in the first stanza are going to get the exact opposite of what they want. Jesus will inherit the nations. He will reign over them. Twice in the book of Revelation, this this verse is quoted, uh, use of Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We come to the fourth stanza and it presents us with the same options found in Psalm 1. We can either submit to the Lord and his son and find blessing or we can stay on the path of the wicked, we can stay in rebellion against God and perish. And so here's this 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 plea, the the psalmist pleads with kings and rulers and anybody who will listen, worship the Lord with joy and trembling to avoid his ra- his wrath. Make sure you are rightly related to Yahweh and his son the king. So in verse 10 we see, "Now therefore, O kings, show discernment; take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice" with trembling. In light of the fact that the Lord reigns, in light of the fact that his son has been enthroned at his right hand, the only discerning thing to do, the only wise thing to do is to humble yourself, repent, and worship him. And it's fascinating. He says, rejoice with trembling. The joy of the Lord and the fear of the Lord go together throughout Scripture. There's no, there's no contradiction between those two. Verse 12 reiterates, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. That expression, do homage to the son, a literal translation would be kiss the sun." kiss the sun. Remember, the son is the king. If you kiss the cheek of a, of a king or you kiss the ring of a king, what are you doing? You are, you are declaring your loyalty. You're paying homage to that one. And so that's what, that's what the psalmist is encouraging, encouraging the, the kings and the, and the rulers to do. We learned in Psalm 1 that the way of the wicked will perish. Here we're told the way to get off of this path of the wicked, the way to stop from perishing, it was true then, it's true now, kiss the king, do homage to him. In New Testament terms, we'd say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your sin will be forgiven you. God puts his spirit within you. You become born from above. You become a son or a child of God most high. And he says there, for his wrath may soon be kindled. The book of Revelation is largely a, a commentary on this idea. It, it, it explains that one day his wrath will be kindled and it will be too late to Repent. And so until that day, kings and rulers, even people in Manhattan, Kansas, have this, and we're the ends of the earth from Middle Eastern perspective, right? We have this option of repenting and kissing the sun. We can get off this path uh, that, that leads to perishing. And this is the basic message that Jesus taught. He came teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is establishing his kingdom. His king will be enthroned. People didn't understand it would be after his crucifixion and resurrection. Then he would be enthroned. But his king will be enthroned, and one day, every knee will bow. Okay? Uh, For many, it will be forced submission. But for us, may it be glad worship. May we worship him because he is worthy. And this is for every nationality. This is for every grouping of people. And this is our mission as a church. We are to go and make disciples among every grouping of people on earth because he is worthy. He is worthy. And then the last line of verse 12 gives the implication for the reader, including you and me. This is the second bookend. It says, how blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And again, to take refuge means to seek protection, to flee somewhere where you will find safety. And we go to the place that we think will give us the best chance of protection and survival. And what we learn in Psalm 2 is that because God has enthroned His Son at His right hand, the safest place in heaven or on earth is in his anointed, in his Messiah. The New Testament says in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is the safest place on earth. That's where we flee. You will find yourself raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places far above every rule, authority, and power. And the rest of the book of Psalms is largely a prayer book for those who want to learn how to to find refuge in Yahweh and his son. And so the Psalms, when you read them, you'll find they rehearse over and over again, God, this is how you protected us and delivered us in the past. And so God, I'm crying out to you in the present. I'm dying down here. My enemies have the upper hand. I'm being oppressed by, by people who hate you, God, keep your covenant with me. And then they look to the future and they say, God, because you've got a track record, I know you will be faithful in the future. And so the Psalms, they just lay out, this is what it looks like to take refuge in him and delight in his word. 25 times in the book of Psalms, you find this term refuge. And the picture we get of taking refuge is of actively trusting in Yahweh, actively trusting in him Through faith, through the word, through prayer, and through relationship with his people. So again, we all face threats, internal, external, visible, invisible. And so my simple question for you today, and this is too urgent to just say, whatever. My question for you today is, where are you finding, where are you taking refuge? Where are you taking refuge, practically speaking, in your life right now? Everybody takes refuge somewhere. Everybody, by, by our actions, we do this. Not, this is not what you think in your head. What, how do you, where do you actually take refuge? What brings you security? Where do you think this is what's really going to make my life work? And we have all sorts of options. And so some people take refuge in other people. Fill in the blank. If my blank would get their act together, then I'd have a good life. My husband, my wife, my children, my boss, my pastor. If that person would get their act together, then I would have a good life. Some people take refuge in money and possession. If I just have a little more, I don't want it all. I want a little more. Then I'll find contestment, contentment. Some people take refuge in their own understanding. If I work hard enough and figuring things out, I can solve all my problems. They take refuge in themselves, in their intelligence, their brilliance. And some people, maybe many people, try to escape their troubles. They take refuge in drugs, alcohol, sex, all sorts of things. It tends to be things uh, that have an overwhelming bodily experience. So our minds are troubled, our hearts are troubled, so this overwhelming bodily experience, uh, sex, sex. Drugs, alcohol do that. This is why not many people get addicted to vitamins, okay? So we want things that uh, that are just dominating us right now. And so my question for you is, why not, why not, in light of everything we're told in Psalm 2, why not flee for refuge to Jesus, our King who is enthroned? Why not trust Him and cry out to Him and, 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 and abide in Him? and find our safety there. You know, the last week we talked about how uh, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating day and night, uh, that doesn't happen by accident. And taking refuge in Jesus, it doesn't, ta- it doesn't happen by accident as well. It's going to take time. It's going to take energy, mental, emotional energy. But just as there's nothing more urgent than delighting in the law of the Lord, being hungry and teachable, there's nothing more urgent than taking refuge in the Lord and in his anointed Jesus Christ. There are just too many threats, visible, invisible, internal, and external. May we be people this week that passionately, with, with full of faith, take refuge in him. And so, God, we ask you to to make us into a people that delight in the law of the Lord, meditate day and night. You're so hungry, so teachable. We can't get enough of you. We want to hear what you have to say. And may we be people that, that don't run off to, to every other option and try to find make our lives work independent of you. We pray that you would be our first resort and that we would would flee to you for refuge. God, some of us here in this room are facing just incredibly difficult, dangerous situations. And God, there's, there's much at stake. And so, God, we ask that you would give us the will and the heart to, to flee to you for refuge. And may we do it alongside one another. May we find great strength in community. Uh, it's by your grace, so we ask you to come through. In Jesus' name, amen.